Okay, so <clears throat> um, <clears throat> this morning, in this talk and, and the next one, um, I would like to try and uh, draw out a couple of strands um, <clears throat> uh, that were in the last two talks I gave and also in the question and answer period that, that were there um, and weave them together, extend them and sort of unfold something um, over over this talk and the next talk. <clears throat> uh, some of you, a few of you in here, I, I know very very well, uh, have um, from practice and from listening uh, and studying are f- familiar with what I'm going to talk about, what I'm what I'm talking about. Um, for others, it might be quite new. Um, so. There's some, perhaps, <clears throat> some risk involved in, in trying to do what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to take two sessions to do it. Probably I should, uh, if I were more sensible than I am, take many more than two. <clears throat> so there's a little bit of risk. But um, there's kind of a long arc to what I'm saying. There, there's a, a twist, twists in the tail of the plot. And so uh, it's quite a lot to ask to, to follow that whole arc. But you're, of course, now we're recording everything. You're welcome to listen again. And you're also welcome to just uh, press delete in the old um, cognitive apparatus. You know, it's completely optional what you do with all this. Sometimes it's difficult for us as human beings when we hear new ideas or a new way of looking at something. Sometimes we're not so good with that. Oftentimes we notice, we, we quite like to hear what we already know. We like to listen to someone sort of saying something that we agree with and that we've already got in, in a box. <clears throat> and sometimes you can, we can actually notice ourselves when we're hearing something new. and see this going on quite, quite a lot all the time. Actually, we, we take that new thing, we shave a bit off it, scrunch it down a bit, and then try and put it in, in the framework of the box we already know. And say, oh, I actually haven't heard anything new. <laughs> it fits already in there. <clears throat> and so there's a way sometimes we don't hear things. But anyway, that's a whole other subject. I've talked about it elsewhere. Okay, so <clears throat> let's start maybe at, at maybe what sounds like a strange place to start. One day, the Buddha uh, was sitting around with a group of monks. And he... They were sitting in silence, and he just said, Listen, monks, I say that the end of the world cannot be known, seen, or reached by traveling. Yet I also say that without reaching the end of the world, there is no making an end to dukkha, no making an end to suffering. So however much you travel, you're not going to get to the end of the world, but if you don't get to the end of the world, you won't... If you don't reach the end of the world, you won't reach the end of Dukkha. And having said this, he got up and went inside his little meditation hut and and shut the door. (laughs) And the monks were uh, sitting there, scratching their bald heads, and wondering what that was. And they asked Ananda. And Ananda basically, who was the Buddha's sort of attendant and one of his um, disciples, and and, uh, Ananda said something like, well, I think what the Buddha's getting at is that basically... We have to know what is the world. We have to know the end of this world of perception. What we perceive with the eye, with the, with the ears, with the uh, other senses, and with the mind. Somehow, in the ending of all this world, this is the world, what I perceive, in the ending of all that, there's some clue about the ending of Dukkha. <clears throat> On another uh, occasion, the Buddha actually was a bit more clear, a bit more uh, specifying, more clear. He said, that dimension, or that sphere, we could say, that dimension, that sphere, should be known, should be realized, should be understood, depending on how you, should be known, realized, understood, where the eye, where the, where the eye ceases, the eye, not, not the ego, the eye, the eye ceases and perception of form fades away. That dimension or sphere should be known, realized, understood, where the ear ceases 
and the perception of sounds uh, fades away. Where the nose ceases and smells fade away, where tongue ceases and tastes fade away, where body ceases and the perception of tactile objects fade away. That dimension or sphere should be known, realized, understood, experienced, where the mind ceases and perception of mental phenomena fade away. So, interesting. Now, let's go slowly here. I don't know. The Buddha seems to be saying this needs to be experienced. Has inner critic come up at this point? It might have. Uh, How could I possibly experience something like that where I can't even be with three breaths in a row, whatever it is? Um, Or it might seem, well, okay, some very, uh, very kind of exalted meditative state. What's that relevance does that have to do with my life? What on earth has that got to do with me and my life and the kind of life I live? So, as I said, I'm, I want to unfold something over a very long arc here. So, if, if either of those is, is a reaction, just, just wait. Just hold on, just hold on. Um, although the Buddha says that dimension should be known experience, although he's pointing to an experience, I actually, in these talks, I don't want to emphasize the attainment of a meditative experience. That's not where I'm going. Uh, rather something else. There's rather something here to understand about the path and about practice. It's what was is a way of of seeing, of conceiving, a framework for what we're doing in practice uh, that might be quite different. That might influence the whole direction and the sense of of what we're doing, that the way we see what we do. So the Buddha again. There is what is inferior, there is what is superior, and there is the complete escape from this entire field of perception. What does does that mean? There is what is inferior, a state of turmoil, a state of anger. These are, I mean, in the Buddha's words, these are inferior states relative to, let's say, states of uh, samadhi, of where the mind is... um, open and bright, states of metta where the mind is open with love and softness. So turmoil and anger, we say we're perceiving that state. There's the perception of turmoil or anger. There's also the perception of the world seen through the state of turmoil or anger. So there's the perception of what is inferior. There's the perception of what is superior. When you're in a state of where there's a lot of metta or a state of deep samadhi, whatever degree that is, there's the perception of that state, and the Buddha calls the jhanas perception attainments. There's something very key, I'm, I'm pressing it here, it will come clear in, over the course of the talks. So there's the perception, there's the perception of the world through the state of metta. How does the world seem to me? How does it appear when the heart is full of metta, bright with metta? What do other beings look like? What does this building look like? What does nature look like? What do I appear as? The perception of what is inferior, the perception of what is superior, and then the, the beyond, the complete uh, escape from this entire field of perception. Another quote from the Buddha. <coughs> Where water, earth, fire and wind have no footing. So in that time, this basically means materiality. It's how they thought of the material world in terms of four elements. So where the whole uh, material uh, reality or realm has no footing, where water, earth, fire and wind have no footing, there the stars do not shine. The sun is not visible. The moon does not appear. Yet darkness is not found. So something... No, nothing is seen there, but it's not dark. Not bright, not dark. And when a sage, a wise person, a Brahmin through sagacity, through wisdom, has known this for herself, for himself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, she is freed. Meaning, from the world of form and from the very refined states of, of the formless uh, perceptions, where there's, there's uh, infinite expanses of consciousness, etc., from form and formless, from bliss and pain, from all this, freed. 
So, and just a handful of quotes there, but there could be many, many more. Um, the Buddha seems to point repeatedly to some sense of um, the importance of transcending, transcending this world of perception, this very world of perception that we take so much for granted. And in some sense is also the importance of a transcendent, some transcendent something or other. And sometimes he talks about uh, the cessation of perception and feeling, uh, the cessation of perception of Vedana. In, same thing. And that's, uh, again, a meditative attainment that comes very close to uh, full awakening, to be able to sustain this non-appearance. Sometimes he talks about this beyond, as in this quote we, we just had before, in a Oftentimes he talks about it in a more negative way. It's just, it's not this, it's the absence of perception. It's this faded away, it's that gone. It's not this, it's not that. Occasionally he talks in the positive. Sometimes he talks about what this realm, or whatever we want to call it, as consciousness without feature, without limit. Consciousness without an object. Mostly, it's beyond what we can put into conceptual designation, so he just talks in negatives. Occasionally, he talks in positives. And Sariputta, his, his, uh, one of his chief disciples, said to be the second only to the Buddha in, in wisdom, in the depth of his insight. Someone asked him, well, when everything fades like this, is there something remaining? And Sariputta says, you shouldn't really say that. And then he said, well, is there nothing remaining? And so said, well, you shouldn't really say that either. And then this person asking said, well, is there both nothing remaining and something remaining? And he said, no, you shouldn't say that either. And then, as a good Indian pundit would ask, is there neither something remaining nor nothing remaining? And you can guess what Saraputta said. <laughs> he said, well, you shouldn't say that either. It's beyond anything you can say about there is something or there isn't something remaining. So let's, let's just take a, a breather here. What's your heart's response to this right now? It might be the inner critic comes in and so much gets in the way of the, the sort of genuine responses of the heart. But is there something else? Or, and I'm not, I don't have any agenda what it should be at all. For me, I'm just curious. But just to check in, what is the heart's response right now? You hear these... Uh, enigmatic pointers, profound pointers to something very much beyond what we habitually know, what we think of as existence, as life. How does the heart respond? So just to notice that without any saying it should be one thing or another. This quote about the stars not shining, etc., etc., um, it's actually from a sutta that's a discourse of the Buddha that's famous for another reason, uh, funnily enough. That part that I read you is, uh, is called the Udana. It's the, uh, what would you, it's the inspired exclamation, inspired utterance, sort of poetic utterance that the Buddha gave. It's actually famous for another reason. I'll tell you the story, and some, some of you will know this sutta, um, or, or the, the, uh, the bit that's famous at least. So there's a guy called Bahia. There was a guy called Bahia. And he was a hardcore ascetic practicing on his own somewhere. And he was very much respected. And he started to wonder one day, I wonder if I've got it. I wonder if I'm completely awakened. And the story goes, there was an angel uh, uh, who was somehow related to him. And she intuited his thinking and appeared to him and said, listen, listen, Bahia, you're really not awakened. And not only that, you're not even practicing in a way that's going to lead to awakening. Um, and uh, good for him, he listened to that. He was open to that uh, possibility. There was enough humility there. There was enough flexibility in the way he was considering things for him to actually question. Hmm, maybe... Maybe there's a different possibility here. And so, and so he asked this uh, angel, Deva, Devata, uh, where can I find someone who could teach me? And, and the angel said to him, well, the Buddha and told him where he was. And so he walks an enormous uh, distance. Uh, he walked. 
And he arrived to where the Buddha was, and um, he found a large number of monks doing walking meditation, up and down, up and down, um, outside. And he said, well, where's the, I want to meet the Buddha. And so they said, well, he's um, gone for arms to collect his food in the town. <clears throat> and so he hurried to the town, saw the Buddha, and approached him. And I'll read you. Uh, then Bahia, hurriedly leaving the grove and entering the town, saw the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, going for arms in, in Savati, the town, calm, calming, his senses at peace, his mind at peace, tranquil and poised in the ultimate sense, accomplished, trained, guarded, his senses restrained, the great one. Seeing him, he approached the blessed one, and on reaching him, threw himself down with his head at the blessed one's feet, and said, teach me the Dharma, O blessed one, teach me the Dharma that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. And the Buddha said, uh, actually, Bahia, this isn't the time, I'm I'm, uh, I'm having my lunch. (laughs) Words to that effect. Um, uh, So Bahia asked him a second time, and he said, but it's, listen, but it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the blessed one's life, or what dangers there may be for mine. It's very moving, just his, ur- his urgency. So very tough. Teach me the Dharma, O blessed one. Teach me the Dharma, O one well gone, that's an epithet for the Buddha, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. And again, the, the Buddha said, uh, actually, we're having our lunch. Um, a third time he asked the Buddha, same thing. We don't know what will happen. I don't know if you might die or I might die. T- teach me, please, now. Um, now, apparently, if you ask Buddha something three times, if they've said no, they have to answer the third time. So that's a handy piece of knowledge in case you <laughs> ever meet one. <laughs> um, okay, so here comes the bit where it's famous, <clears throat> the sutta. So he said, all right, Bahia. Here is how you should train yourself. Listen to that word, train yourself. Here is how you should train yourself. The, the Pali is interesting. There's some wiggle room in the Pali for translations, but let's, let's be conservative. So, in the scene, here's how you should train yourself. In the scene, there will only be the scene. There will just be the scene. You can say in reference to the scene or with respect to the scene. There will only be the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the sensed, the other senses, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you, and Buddha's continuing, when for you there will be only the seen in the seen, only the herd in the herd, only the sensed in the sensed, only the cognized in the cognized, then Bahia, and here's where the it's a little wiggle, wiggle in the transit. But then by here, there is no you due to that. There is no you due to that. When there is no you due to that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder, nor between the two. And the words used in that last sentence, I could also translate the words have the association, you are not in this world, nor in the other world, nor in between. This, just this, is the Buddha saying, this, just this, is the end of suffering. <clears throat> and it's said, and this is partly why the Sutta is famous, said that hearing that, Bahia got immediately fully awakened. Just hearing that, understood something. Uh, a little time, so the Buddha then continues to have his lunch. Bahia goes off and gets killed by a runaway cow uh, with her calf. And the Buddha comes back, sees Bahia's body, uh, and, and the monk says, well, what should we do? And by, um, the Buddha says to the monk, he, he was a completely awakened being. He was an arahant. Uh, so treat his body with respect. And then comes this uh, utterance about where the stars do not shine, etc., that I, that I read before. So... There's, there's actually a lot in that story. It's very interesting with all kinds of resonance. But uh, let's, let's hone it in a little bit. Those instructions, thus you should train yourself. Thus you should train yourself. I remember um, <clears throat> when I lived in the States and we, we had a class for experienced yogis that ran many years once a week. and It was a really wonderful experience. And uh, this would come up uh, occasionally. And I'm, I'm very aware many of you have heard this before, uh, especially that 
little section of the instructions. And sometimes um, the teacher would, it would come up and the teacher would read it, and uh, several of us, my, myself included, would find myself just, okay, really listen when, when this is said. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> if I really concentrate, I'm really present, maybe it'll be the same. And of course, it wasn't. <laughs> why not? Well, there's a lot of reasons why not, but partly that's what I want to talk about. There's a lot of reasons, but I want to hone in on one. It can seem, it can seem when we hear those instructions, in the scene, just the scene, in the herd, just the herd, it can seem to point to um, a practice of bare attention, a practice of finding out, uh, paring down our, our perceptual process to the raw data of experience. It's just this, what it is, as it is, in itself, this thing, this sight, this sound, a thing as it is. It can seem, whether that's a conscious seeming or a not really aware that that's what seems to be the, the message, it can very much seem that way. And so it can sound like an instruction that's about that, about paring down perception, cutting down, cutting out papancha. You know this word papancha? Complication. Uh, weaving in all kinds of associations uh, to what's act, what one is actually sensing, bringing in all kinds of associations, the mind spinning and getting woven in a whole uh, intricate uh, thicket of thought, uh, bringing in the story, complicating what's happening with, with some story, usually about self, ego proliferation, um, etc., overlaying issues and concepts on the bare data. And at its worst, just being caught in a complete whirlpool, a vortex of obsession with that, actually quite disconnected from what is actually going on. <clears throat> so, uh, in some respects, we can hear this, and, and it's very, very common, I think, to hear that, and it seems to be saying it's a teaching about coming close with bare attention, cutting papancha as much as possible. And so being in the world uh, barely, rawly, directly, freshly. Now, it's not that I don't think that's true. I do think there's some truth in that. It's just that if it was only that, it makes the udana, the exclaimed utterance at the end of the sutta, a bit perplexing. Why isn't the Buddha uttering a spontaneous poem about how wonderful it is to be in the world with fresh perception and meeting things bright and without any... But instead, what he utters is some poem to be about being completely beyond perception, any perception, any vision, any hearing, any... It's a strange... It would seem to be, if you read it just as pointing to... Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand the anomaly here? It would, it would seem like a complete non sequitur. What's it doing there? <clears throat> As I said before, those kinds of pointers from the Buddha to something transcendent, to a, a transcending opposite, they're all over the place, in, certainly in the Pali Canon. If you get to the Mahayana, they become almost countless. So, for example, the Dharma Sangiti Sutta, Mahayana Sutta. When all phenomena are not seen, one sees them perfectly. When all phenomena are not seen, one sees them perfectly. It's not saying when you see phenomena just as it is, as it is fresh and direct with just the raw data. When all phenomena are not seen, one sees them perfectly. In the Bahia Sutta, the, 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 the phrase in the Pali is dite dita matam, uh, in the scene, just the scene. If you look up that word matam, uh, actually it can also mean not even. Not any. So it could, could, in the scene, not even the scene. Now, I'm, I'm actually not going to push that at all. I don't need to, but just interesting to note. So the question becomes, with all of this put together, is there more to the, these instructions than it might first seem? Is there more to it? If the Buddha says, just the scene, only the scene, let's turn it around, turn the whole thing around. Rather than coming in with an assumption of what it is, actually, the word just and only imply without what? Without what? If it's just, it must be without something that's usually there. You understand? Just. 
So the question is, without what? Without what? Training myself to perceive without what? And you can say, okay, drop the labels. Drop the labels we stick on things. This is a microphone, this is a clock, this is a bell, this is a Dharma talk, this is a whatever. Um, Okay, okay, and it's certainly, at some level, it's possible to drop our labels in, in the thinking mind, just always naming everything like that. But why? Why would that be so significant? Is it? Is it that significant? What are we aiming for here? Do I have a notion of practice somehow being in the world the, the way a baby's consciousness is, without without labeling things? And that that uh, the Buddha actually poo-pooed that quite strongly. That notion of we're trying to uh, find our way back to a sort of baby consciousness. Sometimes you can drop the labels, and the mind feels actually just very confused. Sometimes you drop labels and there is a sense of real freshness. But is freshness where we're going? Is that what, is that what the Dharma's all about? Freshness? I mean, freshness is good, it's nice. Especially if you don't feel fresh, then freshness is refreshing. But is that, is that it? Dropping, or in the instructions, in Bahia's instructions, dropping or reducing seems to be really key seems to be really key but, but and important, but what, what, and why? What are we dropping and why are we dropping? So, yes, papancha, yes, sometimes labeling. Reactivity, reactivity, meaning this um, habit we have of pushing away what we don't like and trying to hang on or pull towards ourselves what we do like. The reactivity, almost incessant push and pull with experience. I like it, I want it, I don't like it, I want to get rid of it. Aversion and, uh, in, an, in its extreme hatred, aversion and grasping. That reactivity, that habit of reactivity, it includes measurement and comparison. In other words, wrapped up in the whole process of pushing away and trying to hang on is a whole process of measuring things. Measuring this over that. I like this more than that. I don't like this as much as that. Or this thing, whatever it is, was nicer yesterday. I hope it's better tomorrow. Measurement and comparison between things and of a thing in time between past and future is wrapped up in reactivity, push and pull, all of that. Do you understand? Yeah? This is all this all woven in there. So here's another quote from the Buddha. If a practitioner abandons desire for the element of form, abandons desire for the element of Vedana, remember what Vedana means, Caroline talked about it earlier in the retreat. Uh, abandons desire for perception, for mental formations, for consciousness, through the abandonment of desire, the support for consciousness is cut off and there is no basis for consciousness. Consciousness, thus unestablished, not proliferating, not performing any function, is released. Consciousness not meaning consciousness not knowing anything, not performing any function. The function of consciousness is to know, not knowing anything. When in in the moment when a desire, when the push and pull, the reactivity, the measurement, the comparison is completely quietened, consciousness is released. It doesn't perform any function. It does not know anything. So again, the here we get very specific instructions reduce, let go of desire completely in any moment and something uh, transcends ordinary perception. Another similar quote from the Buddha. When uh, a manga practitioner has eliminated avijja, avijja means ignorance or fundamental delusion. We'll revisit this. When a monk has eliminated avijja, an aroused understanding, then, with the fading of this ignorance and the arising of understanding, he, she, does not fabricate, 
it's complicated, let's paraphrase, he does not fabricate a lovely state or an unlovely state, does not create, perception does not, uh, it, that's not perceived, it's not created as a perception, a lovely state or an unlovely state. With the total non-existence of fabricating, from the cessation of fabrications, there is the cessation of consciousness. There is the cessation of perception, and so it goes. So again, there's the elimination, the removal of something, and, and the move, the opening to something transcendent, uh, filling out Bahia's instructions. So what, what does it mean? The Buddha says, eliminate avijja, eliminate ignorance. What does that mean? What does this word mean, avijja? What's he pointing to? Uh, well, one thing, and I'm sure you've probably heard this before, uh, it involves the self-concept, the belief in the self as something real. And that translates in perception as regarding things as either me or mine. I look at my body and I see it's me or mine. I look at even this piece of paper and I say, well, it's mine. I look at whatever, me, mine, my consciousness, whatever it is. That goes with the self-concept. It's avijja in action. Me, meing and mining is avijja in action. Or, more subtly, I am aware of this. I am aware of that sound. I am aware of that sight. Avijja is the belief in a self that is the one who is aware, the witness, or whatever, or who owns this awareness somehow. Now, this level of avijja is not necessarily a thought. We don't usually, well, actually, sometimes we do, but mostly it operates below the level of thought. I don't need to, I'm looking at the microphone, I don't need to think I am aware of the microphone. That's an intuitive, pre-verbal sense, assumption, conception, if we link this back to the earlier talks, view that's woven into my perception pretty much all of the time unless I find a way for it not to be. Again, with the instruction you get, Nagarjuna was, a, if you like, the first Mahayana teacher. One who sees the absence of mine and the absence of eye-making does not see. In other words, seeing, uh, if you like, the, the not-self, the emptiness of the self, does not see. There's again this opening uh, beyond ordinary perception, beyond the realm of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mental cognition. This avijja, that's why Buddha, you know, good translation is fundamental delusion. It's kind of at the root, and the Buddha says this view, I am this, or I am that, it's at the root of papancha. It's at the root of this kind of tangles we get into, this obsession, the vortex. I am this, I am that, believing that clinging to those kind of views is at the root of papancha. That's what, you take that away and papancha, this awful vortex that we get into, that cannot sustain itself. But the self-sense is also, if you like, driving our reactivity, driving the habit we have of constantly measuring this against that, comparing this against that. When there's a self-sense other than the world, this self-sense automatically with it has an investment. Again, a vidya in action. I feel a self, I'm on the lookout for the self. How is this thing going to serve me, this next thing? How will it compare? What can I accumulate for the self? What do I need to keep out? Investment through the self-view, through the avidya, manifests as reactivity, measurement, comparison and when it takes a wrong turning, papancha. Actually, let's ret- we'll return later to this word avijja because there's more to it than that. There's actually more to it. We'll give it a fuller meaning than just the, the self and the, the illusion of the self. 
But here, weaving all this together, there's something, all these instructions of the Buddha, whether it's to Bahia or to the other practitioners in different times, remove something. See if you can take something away in, in your seeing, hearing, etc., etc. Take something away. And then what? And then there's something. Something opens. You could say, we could say perception, experience. I use those words interchangeably. Perception, experience. Experience is like a house of cards. It's not what we think it is. The house of cards is very fragile. It's built. It's constructed. It's fabricated. I take away a card. Maybe that, that structure still stands. I take away enough cards or the right cards, it collapses. Experience, perception is a house of cards. Actually, that's not a very good analogy. Uh, (laughs) Better to say, and I can't really think of a visual analogy right now, but better to say, um, all these things that we've enumerated so far, papancha, reactivity, um, comparison and measurement, uh, uh, the, self, the sense of self, they are all spectra. In other words, you can have them very, very intensely, very solidly, or a bit less, 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 or a bit less. Or a bit less. And we talked about this, I can't remember when it was, in the Q&A or something. The self-sense, it's not just an on-off thing. Oh, I had no self, or there was when I have self, when I'm selfing or not selfing, some people use that language, it's a spectrum. We construct a self very solidly, or a little lesser, or a little lesser, or a little lesser, just as we papanchize a lot, or a little lesser, we measure a lot. You get the idea? They're all spectra. And as we move, or as the language gets difficult, as consciousness moves on this spectrum, more self, more measurement, more reactivity, or less, up and down this, to that degree, or with that movement, comes not just less self-sense, as there's less, but also less perception. Less experience is built. The solidity of things disappears. They start to actually more and more fade. The whole thing is like a, a slider scale. It all moves together. The self and the world of perception. It's also the case that all these factors, we're talking about them as if they're separate. They're all actually mutually dependent. In other words, like I said, the more, the more solid my sense of self, the more believed in, in any moment, the more measurement and reactivity at that time. The more measurement and reactivity of this object that I'm relating to, the more the self-sense. They construct each other. They're, if you like, they're almost aspects of the same thing. Mutually dependent. In the Bahia's instructions, actually, there's a little bit there. It's like when uh, the self, there is no uh, you due to that, and then uh, not in this world, not, not yonder, because you're not making a thing out of that. The whole thing gets woven together. The whole tapestry of what we call existence, self and the world, gets woven and constructed together. And... The Buddha, as ever, is pragmatic. It's training. Thus should you train yourself. Can you train, can we train ourselves to reduce? Reduce these, what could we call them? Builders, builders of perception. Reduce these rods, these girders that are sustaining the structure of perception, self, the world, and dukkha. Can we train ourselves to remove them? Reduce them. And see what happens, and see what happens. So there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum of all of this. And we could say a spectrum of fabrication, a spectrum of how much perception is being fabricated, experience is being fabricated. Now, actually, anyone can see this. Even a non-meditator can see this. So as a principle, as a way of understanding what's happening, um, we, we can actually begin to see that even before we've you know, sat down for the first time ever to meditate. We see in our experience, sometimes we are constructing the self, some object and issue and problem and dukkha, really, really a lot, 
and sometimes less so. Just, just moving between a normal state of consciousness and a really, really upset state of consciousness. We're moving on that spectrum. But go back to that quote at the beginning. There is what is inferior, there is what is superior, and there is the complete escape from this entire field of perception. Talking about spectrum. Spectrum. I'm going down, we could say up. Inferior, superior implies up, but you get the message. It's just that a meditator has the capacity of traversing a greater range of this spectrum and seeing more, seeing more of this building and this not creating and this solidity creating and seeing much less. And one of the blessings in practice that we get to see much less and much less. Not to live there forever, but to see something. So this talk, it's not about meditation. It's not about meditation experience. It's a talk about the nature, of, the nature of our existence. There's one thread of insight that a, a non-meditator can have and can just start following this thread. Like uh, Theseus. Drop that. <laughs> You're following a thread of insight about fabrication. You're just following it deeper and deeper. And the Buddha said, all phenomena are fabricated. The Pali word is sankata, sanskrita in Sanskrit. All phenomena are fabricated. In English, fabricated is a good translation or concocted. Those two words in English, if English isn't your first language, they have the meaning of something built. They also have the meaning of something false. We say it's a fabrication, it's a concoction, it's a lie, it's, a, it's something illusory. And the Buddha was also pointing to this when he said things are fabricated, sankata. He said all and any, all and any perception is like a mirage, he said. All and anything you experience is like a mirage. And perception, again, it doesn't just mean the label, the labeling, it's a fish, it's a microphone, it's a clock, it's a whatever it is. Um, But perception rather means thing forming, thing forming. We make a thing, the process of making a thing, constructing uh, some thing which then we feel we perceive. And that can be extremely subtle, no matter how subtle that thing is, it's perception. The Buddha says, any and all perception is like a mirage. And he says, right after that, he says, and any and all consciousness, whether near or far, whether inner or outer, whether gross or subtle, whether inferior or superior, any and all consciousness is like a magician's illusion. Like a magician's trick, like the trick of a magician. So perception, experience, object, consciousness, subject, illusion, magic, mirage, any and all. And that can be extremely so. Anytime there's any sense of a subject, knowing any sense of an object, no matter how subtle, in any sense of time, this is happening now, there is a now, any of that, illusion, mirage. Including, for instance, the perception of oneness or a perception of a vast awareness. Mirage. Illusion. So let's pause again. How does the heart respond to that? How does the heart respond? Just to notice. And sometimes uh, when we hear this word sankata, fabricated or conditioned, it's sometimes translated, or compounded, sometimes it's translated, which all good translations. But sometimes the implication or the understanding we get is a thing is made from other things. Like this microphone is made from uh, you know, other things that make up the microphone. There's a little bit of foam and there's this different kind of metal and then there's some... Uh, you know, presumably silicon, whatever inside that's a computer chip or something, I imagine. Uh, so a thing is made from other things. 
But the Buddha is saying more than that. Just that things are made from other things. It's like, well, so what? When we really see that things are sankata, fabricated, there's tremendous freedom there. To say that this microphone is made from other things, it's like, well, okay. Maybe it's made from so many other wonderful things and so many rare things. Uh, it's probably not, I mean, <laughs> the guy has budget. But, um, but if it was, that would probably, it, it wouldn't guarantee that knowing that it's fabricated in that sense, being built from other things, would not guarantee my letting go in relation to it. Maybe it gets, I, I get to see it's more precious. Wow, look at all this rare stuff that it's made from. Maybe I cling to it more. The sankata, that level of understanding, won't necessarily lead to, to a freedom. What does it mean to be fabricated, if we use in inverted commas, by the mind? Experience is fabricated, phenomena, self, and the world of experience fabricated by the mind. And even that mind is fabricated, all of it, the mind and the world, illusion. Sariputta said, it's like two sheaves of corn. Consciousness and perception are like two sheaves of corn. They lean against each other. Um, Like any analogy, actually, that one is also limited. It's pointing to something It's actually beyond what you can put into words. Consciousness and perception, subject and object, self and the world, mind and thing, uh, inseparable in some radical way, empty, magical can't even really find a word for it. Something utterly radical is being pointed to. So the Buddha uses this word illusion. We have to say, what does it mean? What does it mean to say it's it's illusory? What does it mean to say something's an illusion? Because clearly there are appearances. Clearly there are appearances. And clearly, and this is really important, actions have consequences. Actions have consequences. So it's not that actions don't have consequences. What appears depends a lot. And it's important to realize. Empty, fabricated, dependent arising, illusory, all these are kind of almost synonyms. They're almost pointing to the same thing. They are, in fact, pointing to the same thing. They're deeper meanings. What does it mean to say something's illusory? One time a guy called Kachayana Kachayana, uh, asked the Buddha about the nature of things and the Buddha said, responded to him, that things exist, Kachayana, is one extreme. That they do not exist is another. But I, the Tathagatas, another name for the Buddha, I accept neither is nor is not, and I proclaim the truth of the middle way between is and is not. Something very subtle is being said about this illusion. And none of this is, you know, uh, it's not to take some position of being intellectually correct about all this. We need to see this. This is what's possible for us to actually see in meditation. Like I said, it's something that a non-meditator can begin to see, and we can use meditation to see it deeper and deeper and deeper. See this spectrum. See this dependent arising, dependent cessation. And what happens? When, I, when we begin to see these phenomena, losing their solidity and fading then the understanding comes of their fabricated nature, of their empty nature, of their illusory nature. We begin to understand that middle way. Then this whole word avidya, fundamental delusion, starts to have a whole other level of meaning. A whole other level of meaning. Because it starts to include, or wisdom starts to include the understanding that phenomena are empty. That awareness, mind is empty, as came up in a Q&A. That the now is empty. The now is nothing real. Appearances are illusory. They're empty. What happens if we go back to Bahia's instructions and you plug, we plug that eventually, gradually, you can plug that level of understanding. Just the scene, meaning this is empty. I'm not even unconsciously imputing that it's a real thing. 
that's usually woven in our perception or that there is a real awareness that knows this real thing. Maybe this is more what Bahia heard, what Bahia understood. It's a whole other spiraling down of the insight. He was a hardcore practitioner and maybe he was ready to hear that, ready to intuit that's what the Buddha was getting at. If you look at it this way, remember this is a talk over two things, so I know it's a lot for today, but I actually it will want to, like I said, unfold something in a bigger picture. What does all this mean? It means kind of, if, if meditation, one way of understanding meditation, it becomes, uh, if I use long words now, a radical phenomenological experiment. What does that mean? Uh, radical means revolutionary. This is clearly a revolutionary understanding in the nature of existence. But radical also in, in the uh, it's root etymology means to the root. Root. Radix is root in Latin. It's to the root of something. Going at the root of existence, of perception. Phenomenological just means I... I have this world of perception and I'm just uh, taking that world as, as um, w- without imputing any other metaphysical concepts, even the metaphysical concept that it refers to something real. So to really, this is what I'm given as a human being, this perception, this, this, this what comes to me, and then the experiment means actually I can play with that and through playing with it, through, go back to Bahia's instructions, removing certain things, like a scientist, different results, actually more like an artist, different results, uh, different phenomena uh, are revealed, an understanding is revealed, a radical phenomenological experiment. So experiment means we, we have to get in there and play with this and actually discover for ourselves through what we can know in meditation. It's not just about the Buddha said this or the Buddha said that and quibbling over some scholastic thing. He taught 45 years. That's a long time. He's bound to be teaching different things at different levels in in response to who's in front of him. So in this experiment, see practice this way as this ongoing experiment at this level of phenomena of experience with experience could I actually keep it very open that's what phenomenological means keep open a question keep open the question of what is fabricated keep that just an open ongoing question so clearly I mean, mo- most people in this hall already know when I get into papancha when I get into a real knot in something and there's self-hatred and other hatred and everything's just tangled and then you come out of that and afterwards you say Boy, what a fabrication. And you can see that wasn't real. I created some kind of illusion. But then we usually want to limit the sense of what is fabricated. Like, well, but this isn't fabricated. This is all real, right? That's not questioned. What if we keep open this question? Just don't, just wait. Let's see, let's see. Let's see what the limits to, to fabrication is, are. That's the gift of meditation, is that it's a tool, tools, to, to keep going with this question. Keep open. Is there a limit to what's fabricated? And if so, what kind of limit and where is it? Is that real? We can't live in the transcendent. I can't live without perception, without experience in these states that the Buddha's uh, pointing to. It's impossible. Life is experience. I I need uh, experience. Actually, I can't even live uh, for an extended time without labeling things. We can't live either or have a sense of life without giving things significance. We we do give things significance uh, without feeling from various things and beings and all kinds of imaginal resonance, some sense of they live in our imagination with, with a, in aliveness. We can't live without narratives. We can't have a sense of life without stories. That's all a whole other talk, perhaps. But 
If that's the case, if I can't live in this transcendent, then what does all this mean that I've been harping on about for almost an hour now? What does it mean? What, what are we to take from this? What, what does it imply? We're just like, oh, whatever. Or shrug from the inner critic and feel bad, or, or what? Fabricated, concocted means false. Now, I see it through meditation and the words as well. A person could say, therefore, the unfabricated is real. The, un- the fabricated is what's false, therefore this transcendent is what's real. And some people will say that. Other people will say, no, 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 this is what's real. This, this touch, this moment of experience, this world of materiality and uh, experience, that's what's real. Anything else is just metaphysics and uh, wishful thinking, etc., or whatever. What's your tendency? Where's your tendency here? Where do you tend towards for your sense of what's your gravitational pull? To me, it's fascinating to see what, what are the tendencies that people have. Are you in the pulled by this, this world of experience and its uh, seeming beautiful reality, religion of this, or are you pulled, are you in a religion of that, of something somehow transcendent? Just to know. Why is it that some people one way and some people the other way? Is it fear? Some people say it's fear. People like the idea of something transcendent because they, they don't like the idea of that actually all this material reality and this experience is going to end at death. So they have the comforting notion of something transcendent. Maybe. Could also be the opposite. Or the other way around. Rather, It's like we give life, and life can only be experience. We give that a sense of this is it, this is something precious, and we give it a capital L, life. Life does this, life, life, life. And there's a fear of seeing the illusory nature of life, because life has become what God used to be. The fear, as an explanation for why some people choose this and why some could go either way, actually, I don't think is a very good reason. Something is not really understood there in the psychology of what's happening, I, I think. And again, that's a whole other subject. I think it's important, though, to be aware and to be honest. Where am I pulled? What do I want to be the answer? What's operating for me in terms of tendencies? Actually, actually, both, both of these views, to say the unfabricated, the deathless, the unconditioned, whatever you want to call it, is real, and this is illusory, both that view and the view that this is real, anything else is not real, both, I would say, involve an incomplete investigation. I haven't gone far enough in understanding something. There's something, there's, as I said at the beginning, there's a twist in the tail to all this. I'm taking a long arc, but there's a twist in the tale, something even more remarkable, I would say even more wondrous and beautiful than either of those two positions. <clears throat> so I'm going to stop here, and I'm aware now it might have landed you in all kinds of places, but I, I want to unfold something over a long arc, and uh, it has to do really with how we're thinking about practice, how we're how we're practicing, what to practice, and how to conceive of this whole journey that we're on. And so hopefully um, the next time uh, we, we meet, we can um, spiral this thing onwards a little bit. Okay, let's have a bit of quiet together then. <clears throat>
If you have found your inner critic is arising, please remember what I said at the beginning. I'm not actually talking about experience. I want to unfold a different way of thinking, that's all. It's not so much to do with attaining this or that experience. It's more a way of thinking about the journey. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.